Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. This is episode number 9, I'm joined by Aaron Stackpole. Today we're talking about learning without videos and basically teaching yourself. We're going to talk about using books, blogging, and becoming the teacher. Let's get right into the podcast. Books? It's all about books. It's a secret to learning book. Really? I don't know. I feel like it's so much in one book that you can get, I don't know, it's lost. or just. I opened up a book of uh, C++ and just like this one. And after a while, I'm like, I don't even, I don't even get it. And then I feel like I'm just reading it and then reading the same page over and over again. Yeah, so it depends on the book, really. The, the, the quality of the book does matter and the way that the book is structured. And oftentimes, I'd say that not all of the content in a book is necessarily useful. What's useful is having a lot of different books on a lot of different topics and being able to find the things that you need from them. And then the more important step is then using them. If you actually look at a lot of my... Sorry. What are the best books? Look at a lot of my personal projects. A lot of them are just prototypes experimenting with different kinds of code. And then another step that I usually take afterwards is writing a blog about it. And then I usually reread my blog several times through just to make sure that what I'm saying actually makes sense. The main thing about it is not necessarily trying to make sense of it, but it's that I'm almost trying to teach myself by teaching others. That's usually the best way. Yeah, so I usually just kind of go through a bunch of different steps. So I have a topic that I'm interested in learning, and so I'll go find books on that topic, and I'll read what I feel is most relevant from that. So Dan recommended this book on C++ uh, 17 multi-threading using the threading library and the standard template library. And it's been a very good book. The first three chapters were really good. The fourth chapter wasn't all that useful for me, so I just kind of skipped it Mm. and went to the fifth chapter. The fifth chapter had some stuff that was relevant. Of course, the fifth chapter then talked about stuff that was in the fourth chapter, so I then had to go and read that. And and you're like, oh, whoops, (laughs) missed it. Um, But, yeah, there's a – I mean, that's, you know, the biggest – that's the biggest thing about learning, really, is just – you have to find the stuff that's relevant and not everything is always relevant. Yeah, that's true. Cause then if you try to learn a stuff that's not important, you're going to get lost. You're going to get stuck, unmotivated. Cause you're like, why am I learning this? And then you feel like everything else is going to be like that, but it's not. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I was looking for a way to build a, a multi-threaded application. Okay. And, now, since I was building it on Windows, I first started by buying a bunch of Windows books. And they got pretty deep into multi-threaded application design using the Win32 API. And I was able to accomplish what I was trying to do, but I felt like the amount of code required to do it was too much. And so I still kept my eyes open for other things. Like, for example, <clears throat> later on got that recommendation from Dan for this book. And I found that as I was going through this book, there were things that I had learned from the Win32 books that was relevant here that were even concepts that weren't necessarily explained here. And so 
I'd say in a lot of cases, really, the key to learning is not necessarily finding one thing that explains it. I think these courses like the, you know, the C++ course that we're doing, we're, we're doing a really good job of kind of making it that you only need to go here to learn what you need to learn. And that's really good, but that's not really how learning technology works. So there's API documentation, which is relatively boring, but at times when you're looking for very specific details, you kind of need to look at that kind of stuff. You know, go up to cppreference.com, right? And and you'll you'll find that there's you know very specific documentation about all of the different libraries and all the different functions within them and templates and all of that kind of stuff. But it's not necessarily very useful unless you already know kind of what it is that you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so for me, a lot of the times what I start with is I just start with a with a goal like. Yeah, like I said, I want to make a multi-threaded application, right? So what does that mean? Well, that means that I want to make sure that my video renderer is drawing stuff on the screen on a separate thread from the input processing so that there's never a delay between, you know, I don't need to wait for an input to finish, you know, that pauses the execution of the entire application before continuing drawing something, right? Yeah. Make sure that input is on a different thread from drawing stuff on the screen. I also want to make sure that the game state management is on a different thread so that I can dynamically, you know, process events coming in from, you know, from the input and actually kind of, you know, making the the game state, as it were, you know, kind of in a separate thread before I get to the point where I'm actually going to draw the next frame. Right. Mm-hmm. You want to keep all of these different states separate. You want to keep. Uh, these different systems separate you want to make sure that uh, when you need to read stuff off of the disk that you're doing that in a separate thread so that you're not waiting for the incredibly slow file system to you know load files and pause execution of your application or anything like that same deal with reading and writing data off of the network so from my perspective my overarching goal was i want to make an application that's able to perform all of these these, you know, different processes independently of each other. And I ended up actually buying about six different books on this topic. And most of them weren't useful. That was the unfortunate part of it. (laughs) Yeah. Damn. But there were little things that I learned from each of them that kind of contributed to solving the problem overall. And that's really where you get to when it comes to learning from books. You, in a lot of cases, kind of just have to build your own problems and then try and figure out how to solve them using, okay. you know, things that other people have figured out. I, I don't consider anything that I'm doing right now to be groundbreaking, right? I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm using the best techniques that people have developed in the 90s and 2000s for, okay. for doing these kinds of things, and I'm just trying to apply those to my own problems. Yeah. Now, what are some easy projects you've done to start off. I'm a big fan of Microsoft's open source stuff these days. And in particular, there used to be the uh, development kit for the old Xbox that they called the XNA, the Xbox. Mm. I actually don't know what XNA stood for, to be honest with you. <laughs> but it was kind of like yeah, it was their old no. X- Xbox yeah. framework, right? And it was called XNA. And it was a, it was basically a a C-sharp-based API that you could use for doing, like, even direct 3D in a managed environment. 
And of course, back when it was originally released, C Sharp wasn't quite as advanced of an, of, as an as an advanced language as it is now. Uh, but eventually, Microsoft gave up on that. They contributed a lot of that code to Mono Game, and uh, and they also eventually open sourced the the majority of the XNA framework as as what they now call the DirectX toolkit. So one of the first projects that I took on was actually recreating several of the XNA games I had done in C Sharp, but redoing them in C++. And that ended up being a lot more challenging than you would expect because in C Sharp you could do a lot of things with the strings library and you know, very easily with the strings library and string manipulation in C is a little bit more complicated. And so early on as I was trying to do this stuff, just kind of going through the original pattern that the that I had learned from this C-sharp book, a lot of that stuff just didn't work because he was doing very simple things like, you know, if the string equals this. And sure, there are ways to do all of that kind of stuff in C++, but as some of the very first things that I was doing, I didn't know it well enough to actually make it work. And so I kind of just built from there. So some of the first things that I was able to do is I was able to write a sprite class um, to, to be able to draw 2D images on the screen and rotate them and scale them and do that kind of stuff. And that was all really easy for me to understand the C++ version of it because I already knew how the C-sharp version of it used to work. And so that was able to give me kind of that, that necessary insight into, okay, so when I'm trying to create this sprite class, I need to understand that, you know, these properties that I'm exposing on my sprite class relate to these parameters that I pass into the actual draw call because the draw call was still basically exactly the same as it was in C sharp as it is in C plus plus. And so understanding like what origin meant and what location meant and what, you know, scaling and offset and all of these different terms were, that was maybe the more complicated part of it when I was initially learning it. And mm -hmm. so I was able to get past that, you know, that complication of trying to figure out exactly what all of those terms meant. So I could then just focus on, okay, how do I need to write this code in C++? How is that different from C sharp? So I, that's maybe not the best answer because, you know, it was basically, you know, that I had learned something in C sharp and then I was trying to translate that to C++, mm -hmm. which made it a lot easier. But I still had to go through the, you know, understand that when I started learning C++, it was only three years ago, and I had no one to teach me anything. I was learning entirely from scratch and from book and from looking at other people's code. So there were a lot of things that were really confusing. I'll just say that. <laughs> like Understanding well, that there yeah. are a whole bunch of different versions of C++ that all have different features in the language, and then also that there are core differences between C and C++ that, that matter, especially when dealing with Windows, because the Win32 API is unique, and it does things a very specific way. So, like, you know, trying to, trying to read, like, a, a single book on this topic was literally impossible, because there are just, the topic is multifaceted to begin with. <laughs> so you might no, find... I agree, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you might find one book on threading in Win32, and then you'll find another book on threading in C++17, and they're completely different, like in every way, shape, and form. Even though ultimately the standard template library's implementation probably does rely on those basic threading concepts in Win32, the way that you use them is very different. 
But that being said, you know, I didn't originally understand like the concept of kernel objects and like what is a kernel object and how does kernel memory work and things like that. And I found a Win32 book that explained that portion of threading so that you can understand like how is it that an event is triggered to to tell a thread that it needs to wake up or go to sleep or do something else? You do that through a kernel object because that kernel object is in kind of a special shared memory space. And so like this advanced threading book that I, that I picked up didn't really explain that kind of stuff. It kind of went by the assumption that you already understood those basics. And so if I had picked up this book before going through the other books about Win32 threading that explained those more basic concepts, I probably would have struggled with it more. So a lot of times it's about, you know, kind of piecing together the puzzle from a lot of different sources, which is challenging for sure. But, you know, at the same time, that's, that's really what it is about learning programming is just constantly learning new stuff. You'll never keep up, <laughs> which is a little frustrating, but... Mm-hmm. There's but so much new learn stuff. The things, yeah, exactly. And you need to learn the things that are relevant to what mm-hmm. you're interested in doing is ultimately what it comes down to. No, I agree. So now, other ways to keep yourself motivated. Do you ever like have like a, I don't know, a sheet or a way to document your progress? Uh, I have a roadmap that I use, and I have milestones that are built into my project management tool. Um, this roadmap, did you find it or did you make it? No, I made it. And a lot of that is just kind of, so I have one book that was on, um, trying to remember what the title was. It was just Game Engine Architecture. That's what it was called. And there was a, there was a, a layer diagram which is a kind of a UML diagram, if you've ever heard of UML. No. <laughs> so it's, it's, UML is like universal or uniform markup language. Okay. It's essentially a, a definition of a bunch of different kinds of drawings that are used to express different kinds of software. So you have a class diagram is the one that most people are familiar with. It has a list of all members and, and methods and functions and things like that. Um, it allows you to build a class hierarchy so that if you have, uh, you know, classes that implement different interfaces or, or inherited from other parent classes, then it's a, it's kind of a formalized structure for drawing those things. If you're familiar with tools like Visio, then you've probably seen something that resembles a UML drawing for software. Layer diagrams are a, a little bit higher scope. You would have classes that might form into a set of components or, you know, some kind of a class object. And then those class objects relate to each other through what we call a layer diagram where you mark out or demarcate kind of each of the different components in the software that you're trying to build. And so that ends up being my main tool for keeping track of the things that I want to do. I just have this huge layer diagram that talks about or that that defines basically all of the systems that need to be developed. And as I work on them, I color code them. This one's finished. This one needs to be done. This is something that I'm going to buy an API from somewhere, you know, those kinds of things to to figure out how to integrate all of those things together. And I just kind of, you know, work through each of the different problems as I need to. But, you know, again, that came from a book. There was a cool layer diagram in a book that I was able to take and extend and modify to, you know, kind of, retool it to be relevant to the project that I'm working on, right? You know what book that was? It was called Game Engine Architecture. Uh, architecture. 
Yeah, let me, it's on my Kindle here. Hold on a second. I'll, I'll pull up the author. Okay. Because yeah, I always feel like roadmaps or any way you can like see what you need to learn or where you're going helps so much. Um, yeah, definitely. Okay. Is it Jason Gregory? That name sounds right. Okay. For some reason, there it is. Uh, yeah, Jason Gregory. Cool. That's the one. Yeah, cool. Oh, that's right. I can't download the, the Kindle only. <laughs> I can't download the Kindle only version of that book. Or the Kindle version Wait, of that book on my or... actual Kindle. I can only download it on the desktop app. It's, it's weird. That's weird. <laughs> it's very weird. Somebody messed that up. Yeah. Like this is this is this book is only available on Kindle and you can't actually watch it on a Kindle. <laughs> of course. Like I don't get it. It's things like that. Like the iPhone and the no home button. Right. Why? But yeah. But um how do you feel about doing like those practices? Because I know the hacker rank or coding games where you can just like solve problems. Does that really help you or is it just like I don't know. I've uh, I've done a few of those and those definitely are useful from the perspective of learning specific algorithms that people are often going to expect you to be able to do for a job. Uh, I didn't find the problems to be very relevant to real world scenarios. Mm-hmm. Like I actually was just reading an article a little earlier that was talking about top software development skills that employers are looking for. And most of those were not, were not the, the kinds of hard engineering skills that you'd expect, like, you know, with like a hacker rank or like any of those kinds of coding test type sites. Those seem to be asking you to like, I, I did one, for example, it was an interesting problem. I, I enjoyed figuring it out it basically had this string and it said count the number of each letter that you find in the string Uh, only count them as the lowercase versions of themselves so uppercase and lowercase were not different anytime you found the same character count it or count the number of occurrences of that character and then you needed to generate a string as the output that was formatted a very specific way yeah Yeah. (laughs) and it took me about 10 minutes to do it and I was pretty annoyed I mean I as I was doing it too because I was like you know grumble 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 I can't figure out any reason why I would ever want to do something like this in real life (laughs) but uh but um that was an interesting problem and and yeah I can I can totally imagine how something like that would be you know would be relevant for an employer to evaluate you know how do you go through the thought process of figuring out something like that right is it and, good for a um, beginner, though, or is it good for, like, learn it and then start doing these problems? That's a, that's a good question. I'm not entirely certain. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think as far as, you know, it's like the, the discussions that we've been having about maths for games that Ben's working on, right? You know, a lot of the comments that I've made is, like, make sure that we understand the practicalities of this stuff. You know, making the calculations and writing the code, that's great, but there's a lot of libraries that do those kinds of things already. 
what what seems more valuable to me is understanding what it means or how to use it right sure you do yeah you i mean you definitely need to understand how to do the math at least one person has to know how to do the math (laughs) at least one right (laughs) um you know so that they can actually write the code to make it do what it needs to do and so there's absolutely value in learning the you know the underlying details of that kind of stuff but you know again practicality i think is going to always win out in the end sure i can write an algorithm that counts a string and and finds instances of numbers and stuff like that and i can imagine reasons why i would do that outside of processing a string you know looking at a database table and filtering out qualities or quantities of you know item numbers you know any number of things like that those are those are the more abstract versions of those problems right so instead of it being a string i've got a list of objects and i need to find you know how many of these objects are of this subtype how many of these objects are of this and they you know, generate some kind of a summary value, whatever. There's, there's ways where a lot of those more primitive problems are, are applied to more complex situations. And so there's definitely some value in, in, in learning, you know, those, those kinds of code tests type things you know, because it gets you thinking about how to solve problems that are a little bit more complex than writing a string to the, to the table or <laughs> writing a string to the screen. Right. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Yeah, because I've been trying to do some of those. And it's helped a little bit. But it's really just like learn the fundamentals and then just start making your own thing, like you said, and then have a roadmap. Yeah, Yeah, honestly, I mean, ultimately you're going to need to, you know, go down the route of things that you're interested in, right? You're you're not going to, you know, you're not going to keep, working on something that you find boring, you know, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, as much as I enjoy working with Unity and Unreal as game engines, they're not necessarily valuable to me from the perspective of what I'm trying to accomplish. A lot of the stuff that I'm writing is, you know, very, very much back-end server type stuff. And so, you know, the front-end is cool and dealing with animations and game logic and all of that. Well, that's fine. It's not necessarily something that's for me, though, right? <laughs> I'm more interested in engineering the back-end of the system, you know, dealing with multi-threaded problems and all of, the, all of those more advanced things that, you know, are kind of nuts and bolts that don't get you all of the flashy reviews for, hey, you know, look, here's this cool new shader in, you know, the latest version of DirectX 12 or, you know, Vulcan yeah. or something like that, right? I think it's lost in the news. Yeah. But, you know, there's always somebody that has to put the plumbing into the building. Mm-hmm. Right, of course. <laughs> and so a lot of the stuff that I'm doing is, you know, very theoretical-oriented work and very much architecture-oriented architect-oriented work that you say you know, the many most people find boring, but, you know, I, I find it interesting, yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I buy a lot of books on, on those topics and just kind of try and cull the answers to the, you know, the, the, the solutions and the answers to the problems that I have just by, you know, read the table of contents. Does this section look like it might be relevant? Okay, dig into it. Are there some good examples in here? Okay, cool. This book has some good examples. And so let me type up some prototypes. And then, as I had mentioned much earlier, and then I write a blog about it. Where do you usually post this blog? It's on my personal site. I don't advertise it because I pay for every hit on that website out of pocket directly. So (laughs) I don't really want people going to it, to be honest. Oh. I I, sh- I share it with like the 30 some friends that I have yeah. and I know at least three or four of them are interested in it 
and occasionally they'll like relink it. I mean, I do have like sharing buttons to, you know, relink over to LinkedIn or, or Facebook or something like it's that. It's more just for you. It's mostly just for me. Okay. Exactly. I mean, I do definitely ever- will write things that, that I find as potentially useful for being on a site like LinkedIn, you know, to, you know, demonstrate thought leadership. Right. But it's more of the marketing aspect of it than that, than actually. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever think of making videos too, or just what? I don't like watching videos, and so really? I don't think that I would really do much better making them. No, that makes sense. Cause, wow, okay. I guess I'm more yeah. of a video person, so I'd rather watch one. Than... <laughs> well, you know, look at you know, look at the process that Ben has been going through right now for the maths for games. I think this is probably the best example that I could give you of how does somebody go about learning something without having a video. Because, I mean, he didn't learn this stuff from watching videos. He reads it from books and then makes videos for the rest of us to learn from, right? It's funny. Yeah, you're right. That's that's the same kind of thing that I do. My blog has stuff on like, hey, you know, here's this cool new f- feature of, of C++, uh, you know, 7, or excuse me, C Sharp 7, uh, and, and the .NET framework about using span of T and memory of T type, which allows you to make fixed basically fixed memory pointers in c sharp that the c sharp garbage collector won't touch you used to have to do that with uh, with what they called unmanaged code blocks and you could you could marshal pointer references and do all of those kinds of things that are a little bit more you know lower level memory management type stuff and get around the garbage collector but they actually added that as a formal feature to the language i discovered this by accident really I was uh, I was writing a, a DLL in C C plus plus, and I was then writing an app a console application in C sharp, and I was playing with the ways that these two that these two you know languages and and assemblies would interact with each other, and I discovered that if I passed a string builder object to a char pointer on this on the C plus plus DLL side, that the C plus plus DLL was able to write characters into the string builder without any problem whatsoever. And I looked at that and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I didn't expect that to work. Like, and the fact that it mm-hmm. did work got me really, really curious. I was like, what's really going on here? So I was able to go up to Microsoft's GitHub site, look at the .NET Framework source code for String Builder, and I dug through that, and there's like a bunch of really interesting comments in there talking about like performance profiles and like cutoffs for memory allocation and the mechanisms that it uses for doing that kind of stuff. And I dug down into it further, and I found this place where it passes a span of T. I'm like, what is a span of T? I've never heard of this. So I went to the API documentation and looked up what is a span of T. And there's an explanation there that says, you know, a span of T is a memory pointer, essentially, a, a, you know, a fixed memory pointer that's a new feature of, of the language in the .NET framework. And so then I dug into it a little bit deeper and I found out, oh, so a span of T is literally just a pointer to a memory block beginning. And that's the reason why when I pass a string builder to a C++ DLL that's expecting a char pointer, that it worked because as far as the DLL was concerned, it was just a pointer and that's all it wanted. A lot of the time it's just about curiosity and kind of, you know, being able to pull together pieces of information from books, from API recommendations, from reading comments in open source source code and learning from that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's basically just do what you want to do and then learn how to make it by doing it. Yeah. 
So I then wrote a blog that kind of explained, hey, this new memory management feature seems really cool. I've, I've you know, read some other blogs where people that had designed this were talking about uh, you know, why they did it. And a lot of it comes from you know, just the general changing nature of technology. Do you, know? you think blogging is the key? Like one of the most important parts of your learning? I think that that is a very important part of it for me. For sure. There's this old phrase that I can never remember exactly how it's worded, but it's, you know, something along the lines of, you know, doing something for somebody, they they get the end result, you know, teaching them how to do something. Well, that's, you know, that's the next step is, you know, hey, you know, taking like the old, you know, give a man a fish versus Mm -hmm. teach a man to fish, right? Yeah. But then there's another step beyond that, which is like having the man that you just taught how to fish also teach somebody else how to fish right uh, yeah because that's kind of the level where you get to mastery where it's like you understand it well enough that you can teach someone else how to do it and that's you know that's kind of like the final step for me so when i write a blog and that's why i was saying like i'll reread my blog over and over and over again and i'll go through and i'll edit that thing for like a good hour and a half as i'm kind of refining it because I don't do the formal free write process that my English prof in college taught, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I just kind of, I kind of like do my free write and then I just dynamically edit it after the fact. Okay. <laughs> and so if you see like my posts, wait like an hour and a half before you read it because it'll probably change quite a bit in that, in that first hour and a half after yeah. I posted it. Because I'll read no. it myself and be like, oh, that wasn't really clear. Maybe I should reword that, you know, and, 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 and that, again, is kind of part of that process. I'm learning, you know, oh, did I really explain this? Uh, maybe I didn't really truly understand it either. And, you know, rereading through it a number of times gets me to the point where I'm like, okay, I do really truly understand this concept because I explained it with the proper amount of nuance. I, I'm sure that, <laughs> I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that trait of my personality does not endear me to a lot of people in this review group <laughs> because I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm really nitpicky about, about accuracy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to be, if you want to teach somebody the right thing. Sure. And I think that, the, and I think definitely that that shows in the, in the quality and Gavin have been putting out now is that they step that up and, and make sure that it's accurate. I was actually thinking about like comparing you know, individuals that make videos about how to do things online versus groups of people that do them. Because an individual perspective is always going to be limited. Mm-hmm. And you can so see that with you, this review group because they'll make something. Yeah. And they'll completely miss things. not even their fault. And they'll be like, oh, hey, or this could be better, this, 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 and that. And make something right. totally new and it's usually better. Exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Game Dev TV products are as good as they are is because you know the the group does spend the time to look through those kinds of things and review them and think about them and make sure that you know that that what's being produced is is high quality i think the other thing that's really useful about it is that we do have kind of that diversity of people you know like me in the intermediate range and dan at the expert range and then john's really good yeah, he's really good. <laughs> and then, you know, others that, that you know, are, are of varying levels of... of yeah. be- like for me, I'm like a beginner, so... 
we get this broad sense scope. Exactly. You get that broad range of experience where, you know, the people that are just starting to look at that stuff is like, okay, this was way too complicated. You know, you need to explain that better. Whereas somebody like me, I might not, I might look at it and say, yeah, that's really complicated, but I got it. And that's not necessarily useful feedback to them. Right. So mm-hmm. it's nice that they have that broad range of, I mean, shoot, Dan always makes me feel like an idiot because he's way better <laughs> at this stuff than I am. And I feel like I'm pretty, you know, I, I'm pretty decent at it. But uh, that being said, you know, it, it shows you, you know, it shows you where your own weaknesses are. And mm-hmm. and it's definitely nice having that, that community to provide you, you know, the tools to get there. So I, I think, you know, to kind of wrap up the topic, that's, you know, that's the other thing that's really important is having somebody that you look up to that can answer those I questions. I to ask you that, yeah. Yeah. How important is to have a mentor or somebody. Yeah, there. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I so I guess as you were talking about earlier, you know, that's that's a new mentorship feature in Facebook groups, and they're trying to, you know, they're trying that out on the Unity course. You know, you can sign up to be a teacher, you can sign up to be a learner. And I think that that would be, you know, again, when you look at, like, you know, the mastery step, right? Fish, you know, give a fish, learn to fish, teach somebody to fish, right? I agree. <laughs> if you can get to that point where you can actually, you know, teach other people, it, it helps it helps firm those questions in your own head and firm those techniques. And also you're often going to be asked questions that you don't expect and you're going to have to have to figure out, you know, how to research that and and answer those questions. So there's always a great deal of value in teaching. Yeah. That's the key to it all. At the end of the day, they get to teaching student has become the master. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel a bit jealous sometimes of, of people that produce, uh, educational material especially good educational material because they really get to learn that stuff better than anyone else <laughs> they really do yeah they probably spent hours and hours on the same subject and they, yeah but they are passionate about it and they need to learn it so they can teach it class so they can teach it to other people yeah so yeah you know blog about things write about things you know learn about whatever interests you follow your curiosity i mean that was one of the early themes of, of a couple of the podcasts here as well was about curiosity you know be curious <laughs> you know find stuff that interests you for whatever reason it is and then go and find material that tells you about it whether it's videos or other people's blogs or or books or api reference or whatever it is you, you're going to have to pull together a lot of information from a bunch of different places to make sense of those things for your own problem i, I actually had a really decent example of of, uh, of a problem that I couldn't quite solve, but I was able to work on it for a couple of hours and then get really close to the end of the solution. And I just had this gut feeling like this should be solvable, but I just don't get exactly how to do it. And I was able to post a picture or a, a, post a question on Stack Exchange or Stack Overflow, not, not Stack Exchange. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, people are, are familiar with Stack Overflow. It's one of those places where if you post a bad question, you get marked down for it and like people rage at you. So it's like really I've difficult seen, yeah. a good question there. But it took me about two hours to get to the point of like, okay, I understand these concepts deep. I was, I was working on Lambda expressions and functors and other kinds of like, you know, more advanced like functional programming style stuff in C++. Okay. And I got to the point where I was like, okay, I feel like there should be a way to solve this problem. And so I posted a block of code that was like, if I was doing this with a functor, it would look like this. 
how do I do that with a Lambda expression? And I gave a block of code and just a little comment in the middle of it that was like, right here is where I think the Lambda expression would go. 30 minutes later, I got exactly that line of code that I needed to put in there from the first person who responded to the question. And that's exactly the perfect question on Stack Overflow because it's, it's explicit. It answers exactly one question. It was not a duplicate of, of somebody else asking a question, though there were several that were similar. But what I discovered from getting that question answered was that I didn't really truly understand the way that the algorithms library works in modern C++. And that was my, that was my limitation. I didn't understand that a lot of the modern algorithm functions can be done with an iterator object passed in and a predicate. And it was the concept of a predicate that I was missing. I was like, what exactly is a predicate? How does, how does a Lambda expression deal with a collection as a predicate? And asking that question the way that I did and getting it answered the way that it was, was able to kind of clarify that for me. I had, I had gotten like 99% of the way there. And it was just that last 1% that I needed somebody who really truly understood this to explain, oh, this is the line of code that you're looking for. I put it in there. I was able to play around with it in my own, you know, personal project. And then I wrote a blog about it. <laughs> there you go. Damn. You should make like a book. Secret to success. Nah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what works for me doesn't always work for everybody else. Yeah. That's, that's the other but thing. But there's probably other people, people like you. Yeah. Or I, I, benefit yeah, I, some way with your method. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, what works for me may work for others. So, you know, I'm happy to happy to explain that and share that but a lot of times it's it's challenging it's it's programming is not easy that's the that's the main thing you know there's as i had said earlier there's always a constant flood of new information that you can learn i mean languages are changing new languages are being created learning fundamental concepts like just the other day just in fact this weekend i finally you know i finally looked up what is p code (laughs) like I was trying to you know I had used this term before and even in some of the stuff that I do professionally um, there was a there was a language called X++ that Microsoft uses for their for some of their enterprise business software and uh, and there's a multi-stage compile process that you go through and the first first stage of that process is that it generates what they call p-code I was like, you know, I, I never really understood what exactly is P-code. And so I then looked it up on Wikipedia. That was a great place to start for, like, high-level concept understanding. Okay, P-code is pseudocode is, is one of the things that it's, that it's sometimes referred to. And essentially, it's, it's code that's a, an abstracted form of assembler that can then be translated into a more specific or concrete implementation on a particular platform. So you write pseudocode or p-code that you then send through like a just-in-time compiler, like .NET, for example, is common uh, common language interface or CLI. And then that gets translated into the machine code that's specific for Linux or Mac or PC because they're going to be different on all three. But that P-code is kind of that unified, central, like, pseudo-assembler that can that, that very closely resembles what's actually going to happen on the machine code, right? And so, like, well, this was a concept that I just didn't really fully understand. 
you know, because it wasn't necessarily relevant to me in any way. You know, I stumbled across it because I finally got to a point where understanding exactly what was going on there might have been relevant for something that I'm going to be doing. And so I needed to understand, okay, what is P-Code? <laughs> and why should I care about, you know, what P-Code is? You because know, if you're trying to write a game engine, for example, that has the ability for people to write scripts, those scripts have to be compiled into something abstract or pseudo-code-ish so that mm-hmm. it can then be written, you know, run within the within the runtime environment of okay. the game. Wow. Well, before we lose anyone else, <laughs> <laughs> right? Let's, <laughs> let's end it here. I think just go out there, find your method of learning, blog about it, teach others. Yeah, for sure. And Find just, what works for you, and, and teaching others is really the best way to learn things. Mm-hmm. Teach or, or, or talk about, you know, write a blog yourself. <laughs> Contribute to the community. It makes a big difference. <laughs> so give a man a lot of code, and he'll be okay for that day. Teach a man to code, be set for life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> turn him into, into a programming professor, and, uh, yeah. and, and he'll, he'll be writing his own programming language <laughs> in no time. <laughs> awesome.